welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. So Headfields, open up a Bible with me to the book of John, of course, chapter 11. So we are in our second series, tackling the second part of the book of John. We've gone from come and see to what? More life. Why? Because the, the chapter or the, the theme or the, uh, the through line of life is everywhere in this book. You can't read the book of John, the gospel, the good news according to John, who walked with Jesus without encountering life, life in abundance, life to the full, Zoe, life, more life. But today, <laughs> so I'm having to pump it up at the beginning, because today's heavy, friends. There's no way around it. Because we get to John 11, which for a good reason, you will see, is a go-to text for funerals. And let me give you some quick, just background on this, the reason for it. So, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they are in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, good friends of his. And while Jesus is out ministering, Lazarus, his good friend, he becomes deathly ill. He's on the doorstep of death. And they call Jesus back to come and intervene. But by the time he arrives, this good friend of his, he's already in the tomb. He's dead. And friends, I want to say this, this topic today. Yes, this book is all about life. But the opposite is where the sting lies for every person. This is the great equalizer. This is the topic that every single person who's ever existed in every culture and background, they've had to wrestle with this issue like no other issue. This is the question that every single person sitting here today, walking out there in our city, they are wrestling with this on a deep level. One of the most successful podcasts in the world, Lex Friedman, he's a MIT professor. I love that podcast. And he has the most just diverse people on that podcast, from the rock stars to the entrepreneurs to the mathematicians. But I love the fact that this guy, at the end of every podcast, the very last question as a standard, he asks every single guest is this question, a question about mortality. What's the meaning of this whole thing? Do you think about your death? And it's so amazing to hear such incredibly wise and skilled people suddenly have to fumble through that very last question often. From the rock stars to the mathematicians, the religious and the irreligious suddenly having to grasp something that's so freaking tough to wrestle with. In fact, recently, Chloe Cooper, she's a, um, she's a writer, and she, she wrote this article for Relevant Magazine asking, why is pop culture so afraid of death? She was saying that if you look, whether it's the MCU, whether it's the favorite series and movies we all watch, there's this inability for people to keep the main characters that they kill dead. If someone dies, it's like two episodes later, one movie later, he's back again. She's back again. Why? And she was asking, like, guys, hear me. As a young generation, we wrestle with this. If you keep on bringing people back with no consequence, you are actually taking the very sting out of death that makes it death. 
She says here at the end, no, it's our mortality that creates meaning in our lives. There is no do-over. This is it. That's the crazy thing that every single human being wrestles with. I've told you guys before about our big five circle of friends, five friends from high school. We've been getting together every year since matric. And just in the space of two months now, two of these five friends of mine lost their dads, both to long battles with sickness. And we were at these two funerals. And man, I'm telling you, I'm, I, st- I think I'm still just, I'm battling with just a whole bunch of things around these two deaths. Being at these two funerals, it was really difficult. I'm going to lie if I say it was, it was all smiles and, you know, these hopeful, it was tough. It's one friend of mine now, just last weekend at the funeral, he walks out and he's so distraught. And he says, as I'm walking out, I realize my dad has been there for every single season of my life. And I just realize he's never going to be there again. Never. They just had their second kid two days before his dad's death. It's tough, friends. So here's the thing. This text, I think, gives us not a fluffy, in the air, uh, kind of whamby-pamby hope that you can be psyched up by, that you can hope for, that's wishful thinking. But at the other side of the coin, I think it also gives us the tools to say, how do we come alongside people who are really battling the suffering and the brokenness of this world? I think both of these things are addressed here. So let's read together. And I want to say, man, indebted to Tim Keller for some of the key thoughts in the sermon. He is brilliant on this passage. So let's read together. John 11, verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. But many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And here's the shortest verse in the whole New Testament. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? We'll come back to this passage in a second. Three things we learn about Jesus and that you need to to bring into your deepest, deepest part of your character today. If we're going to speak about life, and the first thing we learn is this, the otherness of Jesus 
the differentness of Jesus. We'll just create words if we don't have them. Why is he so other? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully God and fully man. So here's an interaction with Mary and Martha, these two grieving sisters. And two sisters, same situation. Jesus comes to both of them and he basically, you know, they both say the same thing to him. They both say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But strikingly, look at how different Jesus answers these two sisters. So Martha, he basically says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. There's hope. So the flow of her emotions is toward despair and brokenness and hopelessness. And it's almost like he's moving against that flow of her heart saying, there is hope. Hold on. But to Mary, very differently. He's basically speechless. He doesn't say anything. He just stands there broken with her. He weeps. Instead of standing against the flow of her emotion, he enters into that emotion with her. So powerful. Now, this is not just because Jesus has great EQ, friends. He's done like some Tony Robinson courses about how to, you know, connect with people on a deep level. I think it's because it's speaking to something even more profound about the identity, the nature of who this Jesus is. Friends, if people say, do you know Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Was there a Jesus We have to get away from some of the stereotypes that we believe in our hearts and we need to get to this person, this historical person. Because this person, we learn from this interaction something that's so dramatically taught all over the New Testament and that is what? That he is both, not 50% man, 50% God, but that he is truly, deeply God. He's God, stepped into the human experience and 100% man. He is, and it's, it's difficult to explain, it's even more difficult to believe, he is the God-man. This is who this Jesus, this is the one making the invitation to you to say, come and find life in me. Now, some people will say, you know what, <laughs> this is made up, friends, let's be honest. This is a bunch of made up stories. I don't believe in it because it's not even true. Here's one thought. If you are making up a story about a person like this, this deity in human form, don't you think you would most probably have this person stepping into the situation with such confidence? Like he's almost floating in and he's like just rubbing his hands like, oh, you have no idea what I'm about to do. Like I'm so confident. I'm so excited. Like this is going to work. Trust me. But that's not what we see. In one moment, he's confident. He's speaking hope. And the next moment, he's broken. He's weeping. Who would make that up? Who would make the hero of their story so lowly, so broken, so desperate? Because to to Martha, he says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. That's a claim of deity. That's a claim of Godness in who he is. I can take life and give it. I'm not just enlightened. I don't have, you know, power or something to that effect or wisdom. He says, I am the very author of life. But at the same time, He says to her and her sister, listen, I'm stepping not around, but into the very brokenness that you experience. He says, I am the resurrection. And contrary to how many people would say, you know what, maybe even some of your Muslim friends would say, I don't think Jesus ever actually says that he's God. Yes, he's maybe the son of God or something like that, or he's a prophet, but I don't think he he is God. He definitely says that. And we can't do like a three-hour now lecture on this, but just think about this. This is one of these moments where I think, no, I don't agree with you. 
I think all over the four Gospels, Jesus makes indirect and direct claims to the fact that he is the God-man. So indirect claims, Luke 10. He claims to have witnessed the fall of Satan. (laughs) Who does that? Indirect claim. We read it not too long ago. Mark 2. As with so many other moments, Jesus comes upon people and he forgives their sin and their brokenness. He steps into other people's nonsense and he says, I forgive you. Who does that? Indirect claim. Many direct claims like this. John 5, we read it just a couple of weeks ago in the series. The crowd wants to stone him. Why? Because he associates himself as equal to God. John 8, just two weeks ago. He claims not only to be eternally existent before Abraham, the great hero of the Jewish people, but he takes on the divine name himself. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Friends, who says these kinds of things? Now, why is this so important? Because a radical ministry asks for a radical response. If Jesus was just trying to be wise, you could consider his wisdom. But listen to what he says. He says in verse 25, underline this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And here's the question. Do you believe this? A radical ministry asks for a radical response. So Kenneth Latterite, he's a Yale University historian, and he says this about Jesus. He says, it's not in his teachings that makes Jesus so remarkable, although, yes, that would be enough to give him distinction among all these wise men, all these religious figures. He says, no, it's the combination of his teachings with the man himself. It must be obvious to any thoughtful reader of the gospel records that Jesus regarded himself and his message as inseparable. Yes, he was a great teacher, but he was more. He's so much more. This is the one who invites you to say, come and find life in me. There is a claim in this God-man that he's not 50% enlightened and 50% human and he's this or he's on his way to Nirvana. No, he is 100% God and 100% man. He is the God-man stepped into the very brokenness that you and I experience. And I think this is so powerful because most of religion, well, let's, let's be bold and say all of religion, it basically makes a promise to you for later. If you chant, go, pray, give, then there is some promise awaiting you. Again, within the Muslim and specific in the Sunni framework, we have this idea that if you commit to jihad, then for the men, there are these 72 virgins awaiting you in paradise. That's a promise of later. Or maybe there's nirvana, or maybe there's reincarnation, or maybe there's paradise awaiting, there's heaven All these things are promises of the later. And here God says, I don't give you a promise. I give you a person. Promises you can work for. A person you can trust in. Promises you can go to your grave with with your heart beating saying, "I'm, I'm deathly afraid of what's about to happen. I'm going into the one thing that no person has ever escaped. And I'm just holding on to this one day promise. But here is the person who has gone into the very mouth of death itself, come out in victory, and he puts out his hand to you and says, trust me, trust me. That's so different 
This is not about a bunch of promises for the, for the later. It's about a God who says, yes, life before death and life after death. It begins today in Jesus. It begins by trusting in the God man. He doesn't make promises for later. He steps into your today so that both today and tomorrow looks radically different. Radically different, friends. Second thing we learn about Jesus, not just this otherness, I had to bend these words, but the effectiveness of Jesus. Why? Because he perfectly meets you in your deepest need. Perfectly. Friends, no other religion is even willing to say something as crazy as that the transcendent creator of all, the unmoved mover, has stepped into the frailty and the brokenness of a human and experienced to such a deep level what you and I have experienced. He's not in some high tower saying, you know, I think you should have done this and that. He says, I am experiencing the very suffering and brokenness that you experience. So because of that, it's so unique, the God-man thing. Because of that, look at how he interacts with these two women and then see how that, this person, not a thought, not a framework, not a, a, a ritual, but how the person, the God-man, is exactly what you and I need in our deepest parts of our soul. Listen to what he does. Martha, and we've spoken about this before. I love this thought. He gives these two ladies the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. The ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. Martha, he says, he gives her the ministry of truth. He grabs her by the shoulders and says, listen, I am here. The resurrection, life, it's not the end. There's hope. Don't allow yourself to fall into total despair because this is not the end. I am here. Because that's what she needed most at that moment. Jesus could see in her soul. There was a, a moment where he had to grab her from the place of despair and anchor her to truth. This is not the end. But look at what he does to Mary. He does the exact opposite. Instead of giving her the ministry of truth, he gives her the ministry of tears. He doesn't say anything. He says, you know what you deeply need? is just my presence and my tears. Just my, just my, my presentness with you. Just saying, you know what, this is broken. This is, this, is, this is not right. This is not what it should be. And I'm not going to try and convince you, help you, give you perspective. I'm just going to cry with you. Jesus wept. Because that's what she needed most. In his God-man identity, he can be the highest perspective for us saying, friends, trust me, this is not the end. But he can be the lowest possible place where our emotions can go. He's been there. And he says, I enter into it with you, not from judgment, but from a place of perspective. He can do that. And here's the thing, friends. Every single one of us, you've got friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members. Maybe that's you today. And every single one of these people in our spheres, they are in a space maybe today where they are in need of either the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. Jesus started something on earth in his new kingdom that's expanding, but now it's going forward through his church, his body. So the ministry of truth and tears, it's today alive and well through the spirit in you and through you. The question is, who is in need of what at the moment? Because can we agree that the wrong thing at the wrong time is horrendous? When people try and give answers to people in broken places, it hurts them. But when people are looking to engage and they've got questions and we just say, oh, you know, well, it's just life, that hurts them. 
remember many years ago in my early 20s as a student, I have this good friend, I've known him forever, but with, not from a place of judgment because I love him so much, but we've got radically different worldviews. He's an atheist and he, he's basically just, it's not because of his atheism, but he's a womanizer just through and through. That's, his, that's like, he's a hedonist. And my early 20s, this guy had such an effect, such an influence in my life. Young people, listen to me. There's a massive difference between having all your friends that are non-Christians still in your circles and connected and the question as to who is influencing you deeply. Massive difference. I allowed him to influence me so deeply that my big five friends, once again, they had an intervention moment with me. They invited me to someone's house. I thought it was just for coffee or whatever. And here all five of them, all four of them are sitting and they had this moment, the ministry of truth. Joe, we can see what's happening here and you're not seeing it. That's what I needed. I needed the ministry of truth. But I think of a good friend of ours, him and his younger brother in high school, their parents, both lawyers, they went out to a wedding and drunk guy just smashes into their car, both dead on the spot. These two young men lose both of their parents. And I'll never forget just the, it was like nails on a cosmic chalkboard at their funeral, how this, this one elder gentleman with a good heart is trying to tell these two young boys, hey, you know, God always comes and he plucks his most beautiful flowers and he's trying to color this thing in. He was missing the fact that they did not, in that moment, need the ministry of truth. They needed the ministry of just tears. We are just here with you and for you. This is broken. This is evil. Jesus wept. Friends, who in your life at the moment needs the presence of the Holy Spirit just working powerfully through you? He's effective, man. Finally, not just the fact that the otherness and the effectiveness, but the furiousness of Jesus. There's a fury. There's an anger in Jesus that we need to grapple with when it comes to death. And if you don't get this, Jesus is a weak man who gives you nice, uh, almost like, you know, what's it, uh, the cookies that you get? Fortune cookie, almost like he's the fortune cookie, like good thought Instagram post when, when life is difficult, if you don't get this. So what Jesus does is he reveals the posture, the attitude of God toward our brokenness and toward death and sin. See, because this passage leaves all of us with a question, so we're going to read a bit further now. Why would God step into this brokenness and death if the claim is that he is the God-man, not just enlightened man, not just wise man, but he's the God-man? Why would God do this? Why would he need to do this? So let's read a bit further. John eleven thirty-eight. 38. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again. We're going to come back to that. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because it's been, he's been dead for four days. The Jewish people believe that the third day had this possibility of maybe like coming back together, maybe life and soul and body. So it's almost intentional that, no, it's the fourth day. There's no more chances. It's been four days. But Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, the doxa of Deo, as our name implies. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I say this so that they may believe that you have sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, 
bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Man, that's powerful. But this little key in the middle here, it says Jesus deeply moved again. It's the Greek word embrimaomai. And what it basically means is that he was furious with emotion. That's what it means. So actually, we should read it as saying, Jesus, furious with emotion again, came to the two. Now, isn't that strange? I think that's why they, the translators kind of, they want to soften it a bit because it sounds weird. Like Jesus arriving on the scene and he's angry. Why is he angry? With whom is he angry? Is he angry at the family? No, nothing in the text says that. Is he angry at Lazarus? Is he angry at the sisters? No. So what is he angry at? Because he doesn't say, listen, guys, it's death. Get used to it. It's a reality. Death and taxes, it's one of those things. We tried, it's done. No, he doesn't say that. He's furious. He's angry. So is he angry at himself? If he is God, is he angry at, at God then? Is he angry at his own nature? I don't think so either. So what's happening? What does it mean? If he's not angry at them, if he's not angry at himself, what is he angry at? Here's, I think, what we need to see. He's angry at death. He's angry about evil, about suffering, about brokenness. Just the other day in our community group, one of the girls just said something that we all know. One of her friends is saying, I cannot believe in this Jesus stuff because look at the world that we live in. It's horrendous. It's broken. It's rape and pillage and hate and, and, and racism, all these things. How can you believe in a God? And here, I'm not saying, man, I can't give you a bow tie answer for all of that. But here is the beginning of something that we can grasp at, that this God that we believe in does not sidestep that evil and suffering. He doesn't say, well, let's just wave it away or let's, let's detach ourselves like the Buddhist would. No, he says, I step into the brokenness and suffering and I experience the torture and death and hate that you experience. Friends, there's something deep in there about this God. He says, not just I acknowledge this, I am angry at the brokenness of this world. So what does that teach us? Really quickly, it says that evil and death, they are not the result of God's intent. It's the result of sin and brokenness and the fallenness of our world, friends. This is not part of God's creation and intent for you and me to suffer, to experience brokenness. But we live in a fallen world because of sin, because of rebellion, because of brokenness. This is not God's heart. He is angry at what he sees. Think about if I go out with my three kids and we're walking in the street and suddenly this, this vicious dog it escapes kind of its enclosure and it just goes right for my kids. Now, if you, if you even just a half-decent dad, what are you going to do? You are going to launch yourself at that animal. But is it because you are just a hateful person? You just hate animals. You hate dogs. I mean, if it's a, if it's a cat, I understand. But a dog, like, you just, you don't do that. No, it's, it's what? The emotion is that of love. It's because I love my kids that I launch myself at this animal. God says, it's because I love my creation and my people that I launch myself at the evil and suffering that they experience. I don't speak from a high tower about it. I launch myself straight into it and I deal with it. 
But secondly, you might ask, well, then if that's the case, why doesn't God just appear? Why hasn't he done that long ago? And he just eradicates all the evil. One shot. It's done. That's a good intuition, but I think you already know the answer. So let me illustrate. Adolf Eichmann. He was one of the architects of basically Nazi Germany terminating more than 6 million Jewish people, men, women, and children. Friends, people go to a place like Auschwitz and some of them lose their faith because they see such unfiltered evil and suffering that they can't handle it. You see just cases full of wedding rings. You hear about the most horrendous experiments and suffering and evil and you can't handle it. This is one of the men who designed it. He was an architect of this evil. And eventually he's captured on the run. And in these famous trials called the Nuremberg trials, he's put on trial. Eventually he's killed. But there was a moment they obviously needed witnesses to testify against this man. And very famously, this Jewish man called Yehiel Denur, he was brought in. And in this pivotal moment, very famous moment of history, as this Eichmann is brought in and he's put behind this glass enclosure, Denur just suddenly just breaks down. He falls, he, he faints just from emotion. He's crying. It's, it's this pandemonium moment. No one knows what's going on. The guards are trying to help him and, and the judge is like slamming down to try and get order. What is going on? And so months later, on 60 Minutes, he's interviewed by Mike Wallace and he asks him, he shows him the footage of this moment and he says to him, what happened? Why, why did you experience such raw emotion? Was it anger? Was it hate? Was it just the, the pain coming back that you experienced? And listen to the crazy answer that he gives. He said, shockingly, no. When I saw that man coming in, the architect of so much evil, I was expecting a monster, a demon. I was expecting something subhuman. No human being can do what this man did. It's impossible. But when I saw that man walking into that courtroom, I was shook to my core because I realized that's all he is. He's just a man. He's just a man like me. I'm not at all that different. In fact, the same stuff that's in me, I recognized in him. He's just a man who's taken one step at a time down a path that I easily could go down myself. Friends, here's the truth that you and I intuitively know. If God were to come to this earth and just eradicate evil, none of us would survive. Because what we recognize in the most evil of things that we read in the papers and we see in history, we see some of that in ourselves. We're not that different. Maybe you grew up differently. Maybe you made better choices. But the same stuff of evil we find very close to home. And so, yes, if Jesus came with sword in hand, as we often say, with the judgment of God, yes, we would be done for. But he doesn't come with sword in hand with God's judgment. He comes with nails in hand, absorbing the judgment. We said last week, in the place of his sheep. He says, I come and deal with the evil, both outside of you and inside of you in myself, so that you could find life. Not a promise of a one day, but today life would begin. Friends, you have to have 1 Peter 3.18 somewhere. You have to have it somewhere. It says, for Christ suffered for sins once and for all. The righteous 
for the unrighteous. Why? So that you can try harder, so that you can have a new lease in life, so that you can go to church a bit more often. No, so that he might bring you to God. That's powerful, friends. And so the last thing is this then reveals, if this is the truth, it reveals the heart of Jesus for you. Because here's a little throwaway verse, verse 53. It says, after healing Lazarus, it says, from that day onward, they, the Jewish elite, they plotted to kill him. From that day. Jesus knows this, friends. He's the God-man. He knew that for me to bring Lazarus out of the grave, I will be stepping into the grave. He knew that if I were to rescue him from death, I am basically embracing death. And so what do the people say about that? Verse 36, they say, see how he loved him, how he loved his friend. Friends, this is the statement you need to hear over your life. For humanity, see how this God loves you. For you to experience life, he had to launch himself into death. For you to never feel abandoned ever, he had to be abandoned on a level that no creature will ever even understand. For you to, to run out of that grave as we sang this morning, we can just, man, we, we sing those things without even thinking what we're saying. For us to run out of the grave, he had to enter into it for you and me. How does God loves us. So in closing today, just practically, what do we do with this? For the Christian, I want to say quickly, if you're a Christ follower here this morning, if you say, man, I've put my trust in Jesus, two quick things. Number one, are you living from the freedom of this finished work? Not the burden, not the condemnation, not the religiosity. Are you living from the freedom of this finished work. I love how the message paraphrase of the Bible, it puts Hebrews 10 verse 10. Just let this sink into your soul this morning. It says, we are made fit, fit before God. We are made fit for God by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 14, it was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. Friends, what freedom and trust and confidence will someone walk around with when they know this at the very depth of their being? I cannot be intimidated or bought. I cannot be overthrown or broken when I know that I know in my heart that it's not what I have done, but it's what he has done for me. When I ask you maybe this morning, how's it going with your faith? How's it going with your relationship with God? I know so many of us instinctively go to all the actions. I'm, I'm, I'm reading and I'm, I'm trying, I'm going to go to the church again and I've messed up here. Friends, and that's, that's great. Maturity in faith is great, but identity is found here. Identity is found in the finished work of the perfect person to perfect you. What freedom can you walk in and out of this church with this morning if you know that this is the case. And secondly, just the question to you, Christians, is once again, friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members, friends, people are hurting on such a deep level. Jesus began something in his spirit that he's continuing through you. Where is the truth and the tears for our city? 
it's gonna come through you. There are people in your life at the moment who don't need the answers. They need your presence. They need your tears. And there are people in your life that are grappling with things on such a deep level. And 1 Peter 3 says, we can share the hope that we have in us. I love 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It says, yes, we will grieve. When, the, when, when people die, man, we should grieve. Christians are not robotic automatons that just go through life and just pretend like it's not the truth. No, we grieve. But we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve with hope. And there are people in your life who need the grieving hope of truth and tears. And God has called you. And secondly, I just ask, if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you say, man, I've tried the religious stuff. I've, I'm messing up my life so badly. Maybe you've got everything you've ever wanted. And you sound so deeply dissatisfied. But you can say, I know of Jesus. I've dabbled in some of this stuff, but I've never fully embraced the God-man, Jesus. Not as a promise for one day, but as a, a moment of trust. Yes, I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. As you dove into the mouth of death, will you rescue me? Will you make me alive? Will you come and create me anew in a new identity? Man, if, you, if that's you this morning, I wanna pray with you. My life was radically changed. After years of religion, I met the God-man. Not in some, the heavens opening and emotion. And I just heard the good news. And it's like I heard it for the first time. I said, yes, Jesus. Can we just close our eyes? If that's you this morning, and you say, yes, today I want to embrace and believe in the God-man Jesus. Just raise your hand for a moment. that's you. You say, yes, I want to embrace him. Let me pray with you. Jesus, I pray that every person who is in such desperate longing, that they would find today, God, the joy of new life. Not life in religion, not life in ritual, but life in the finished work of Jesus. May your spirit just come and do heart surgery this morning, God. Come and connect us back to our Father. Like Jesus today, we say, Father, you, I know that you always hear us. And will you just come and make alive again? Welcome sons and daughters back to your house today. We trust in you, Jesus. We trust in you for life before death and life after death. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Yo, heavy guys.